Welcome back, everyone, to Dangerous Thoughts here on Unsafe Space. Uh, maybe I should put the logo on. There we go. Uh, I'm Carter Laren. I took a couple weeks off. I'm your host. I took a couple weeks off to to visit America for Independence Day. So got to experience life outside of California. Spent some time with a dear friend and his family. And I'll admit, sometimes it's hard to stay motivated to fight for Western civilization when you live in the San Francisco Bay Area. But it's refreshing to be reminded that there is actually a culture of liberty out there in small towns. Um, maybe they don't have a lot of philosophical discussions around the barbecue, but there's a visceral appreciation for America and the unprecedented form of political freedom and individual sovereignty that it offers. So that was good. I'm glad to be back. Welcome back, uh, all of you. Hopefully here on Dangerous Thoughts, we can continue to help people defend that individual sovereignty, uh, both intellectually, philosophically, maybe psychologically, I don't know, because uh, ultimately we're engaged in a battle of ideas, and uh, we need as many people to be armed as possible. And to that end, I'm particularly excited about today's episode because we brought back one of my favorite guests, um, one of the foremost philosophical defenders of individual sovereignty alive today. His name is Dr. Stephen Hicks. Before I bring him on, just please take a moment to make sure you are subscribed uh, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, they like to unsubscribe people, so please go make sure you're subscribed and share your favorite episode with uh, with a friend of this show or any other show. Um, and please consider supporting uh, Unsafe Space, any of our series, just go to unsafespace.com slash fight, and you can help us fight for Western civilization. Okay, so without further ado, as I mentioned, this evening I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Hicks. Dr. Hicks is a professor of philosophy at Rockford University in Illinois. He's also the executive director of the Center for Ethics and Entrepreneurship at and senior scholar at the Atlas Society. He's the author of six books, including his forthcoming book, Eight Philosophies of Education, which I was hoping would be out, but it's not out yet, so I'll ask him about that, uh, and including a book that I've mentioned before, I happen to have sitting over here, Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault. Uh, as I've said in the past, this is a must read for anyone who's interested in kind of understanding the philosophical roots of, of the authoritarian left and the craziness that you're seeing today. He's published in several academic journals, including Business Ethics Quarterly, Teaching Philosophy and Review of Metaphysics, as well as a bunch of mainstream publications. Um, he's host of the Open College podcast. You can find him and follow his work at stephenhicks.org. Stephen, welcome. Welcome back. Hi, Carter. Thanks for that uh, gracious introduction. It's just a bunch of facts about you. So I, <laughs> I don't, you know, you, should, you don't need to thank me. Pat yourself on the back. Oh, you're, thanks, you're pretty cool. Um, so look, uh, last time we discussed an overview of kind of the Enlightenment and we defined it a little bit and we moved on to postmodernism and critical theory and we got into that. This time I want to focus more on some questions that I've been thinking about um, on my relatively, it's been a relatively recent journey that I've taken to try and educate people about the philosophical roots of Western civilization and defend it, you know, overtly. I'm, you know, I used to sit around and code and do other stuff. So this wasn't, this wasn't really what I dedicated my career to. Um, and uh, a lot of, I've, I've been struck by a lot of questions. Some of them I have answers to, some of them are questions from the audience that I keep getting. Mm -hmm. uh, pushback, but some of them are just things that bother me. And one of them is, well, just, let's just start with a big one. <laughs> um, why do so many people view philosophy as, as pointless? Um, and they kind of, there's a, there's a big disinterest. Like they're happy to talk about politics. They'll argue about, uh, you know, a Supreme court case or a law or whatever, mm -hmm. or, you know, they're, they're happy to argue about that stuff. But the minute you step back and say, let's have a discussion about philosophy, because that's what actually pertains to all of this and we need to apply it properly. It's their eyes glaze over often and they're like, this is just a boring thing unrelated to my world and I'm going to yeah. go away now so I can scream at the other side. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, one of the reasons is that uh, much of philosophy is pointless crap. Uh, so we'll start off with the, uh, the negative. You can't say that while I'm taking a sip. <laughs> so, you know, if you look uh, at... Okay. Much of the, the, the main uh, philosophical schools that developed over the course of the 20th century, uh, most of them were explicitly self-destructive. You know, they say we have no answers to any of life's questions. And so some of them uh, just get into pointless word chopping and they, 
they're self-consciously just doing that, or they go off into uh, self-indulgences of various sort, or they end up taking themselves seriously and ending up in various sorts of sorts of nihilism. So, uh, you know, while there were some very healthy developments in 20th century philosophy and early 21st century philosophy, overall, it was not a good century for philosophy. And so I think thoughtful people uh, listen to a few philosophers and say, well, if that's what philosophy is, the healthy reaction is to, uh, to, is to, uh, is to tune it out. But uh, I don't think that explains the, the whole thing. I think there, there is uh, another issue that uh, for most people, time is short. And so the available bandwidth by the time you become an adult, particularly for thinking about deep, hard, abstract issues is relatively limited. So the more important thing is going to be what kind of philosophy uh, people get exposed to in their teen years. And especially mm -hmm. since we are fortunate to live in a society that is largely free and very wealthy, we do have this whole 10 to 15 year old span of life where we can explore lots of ideas and grow up and, and find ourselves the way uh, you know, the hippies nicely, <laughs> nicely right. put it. And for most of us, that's a, that is a very philosophical time when we're thinking about, uh, you know, does God really exist or not? What kind of person do I want to be? What values are, are worth are worth pursuing? Does love really exist? And that, all of that is very philosophical. And, uh, and, and most of us are, are fortunate to be able to do a certain amount of it. Now, if they don't get good guidance at that point, uh, if they get run into the, the dead end philosophies or the cynical philosophies, then of course, they're going to going to shut down. So I think probably we do live in the, uh, the most philosophical generation ever, just because we have had people raised in a culture that is free and rich, and they've had more time than probably anybody else has uh, has, uh, has had. At the same time, though, uh, philosophy is hard. Uh, there is a reason why there's a role for professional philosophers and professional public intellectuals in that intellectual and cultural div uh, division of labor. Uh, and, and, I, and I think we just need to do a better job, uh, those of us who are in that profession, at rehabilitating the role of philosophy in most people's lives. I mean, that it makes sense that that philosophy kind of, I mean, you can see that it's self-destructive. I mean, deconstructionism is almost explicitly self-destructive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like they even pick names to kind of indicate what they're what they're up to. Sure. Um, and so I, I and I guess that makes sense. I mean, the, the the sad thing about what you've just said is it's nice that we're rich enough that we're not working out in the fields at the age of uh, eight and mm. never having any time to, to sit and think about these things. So we do have that period of time as in the teenage years and, and early adulthood. But largely that's directed by state institutions mm. or state funded institutions that haven't really been, uh, let's say, giving us the best there is. <clears throat> well, no, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Um, I mean, obviously, there are, there are some good public schools out there uh, and, and good good teachers, but overall, uh, public education is uh, you know, at its best under delivered <laughs> relative to the time and resources that have been have been poured into it. And uh, to, to put it more strongly, I think it has uh, dehumanized human beings, young developing human beings to a significant extent. I mean, it's, it's almost a cliche about five-year-old kids who go off to school and they're all excited. Yay, I'm going off to school. And then by the time they get to second grade, they hate school. And yep. the best thing that can be said about it is that uh, they, they learn very well how to tune out school as much as possible. And to a large extent, they are they're doing that in self-protection mode. Uh, and so their 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 human development is not something that happens very significantly in the classroom. They will get snippets, right, of course, but it will happen in their extracurricular activities. You know, if they're they pursue music or sports uh, and it will happen outside of the outside of the school. So uh, <clears throat> children, I think, uh, you know, in Western civilization and, and, and you know, that's becoming world civilization as as each generation goes on. I think they're still getting well educated, but it's not happening in in schools and schools, I think, are a net drag on the, on educational development. Now, fortunately, I think everybody knows this now uh, and everybody is starting to do something about this in the last five years. So as bad as things are, 
I, I am optimistic because now at least millions of parents are stepping up and, uh, and, and thousands of entrepreneurs are stepping up and challenging the status quo, <clears throat> introducing reforms and starting brand new, brand new, uh, brand new systems. So I think we're going to turn things around. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think COVID actually had there was a silver lining to the lockdowns, which is the parents got to was, see yeah. like, oh, this is what's going on in school. This is horrible. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, so that's so <sighs> you you said a moment ago, philosophy is hard. And I don't obviously I don't disagree with you. I'm not a professional philosopher and it seems hard to me. Um, there's certainly some of it seems rather not difficult. Um but there's a lot that's really hard. That's like there's some like nuanced cases and weird stuff. And and actually, if you go beneath the surface, it gets harder and harder often. Mm. It's like, you know, some of it can seem pretty straightforward. And then uh, and then it gets a little bit more difficult, probably like physics. Newtonian physics is pretty straightforward. But then uh, when you start having to calculate uh, <laughs> probabilities that, uh, you know, wave function probabilities in, in quantum mechanics, it gets difficult. So I, I've heard. A lot of pushback because I argue for a rational philosophy and um, you know that I, 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 I'm from the, I'll say I have an objectivist background. I don't like to use the big O objectivist thing because I'm not a big fan of a lot coming out of ARI and they kind of have a mm. monopoly on, on a pseudo monopoly on objectivism. But um, a lot of people will say, well, it's too hard for, and this sounds very elitist, but this is. I hear this a lot. Hmm. It's too hard for the masses, right? It's too hard for ordinary people to live by a philosophy of, of reason. It's too intellectual. It's too nerdy. You have to, you know, you have to sit down and talk about individual sovereignty and where that came from and then understand how to apply philosophy to, you know, everyday life. And, and it will never really work. This is why religion is better uh, because there's just a set of rules. You just follow the rules. Um, and people don't have to figure it out for themselves. So, so the arguments are basically, uh, it's too hard to divide the ethical, to, to derive the eth ethical rules yourself. And if you're just mm. accepting the rules from someone else, you're not really, you don't really know it's, it's no different than accepting some other set of rules. Um, and that there's this inherent kind of psychological need for belief in something bigger than yourself or a, a deity or faith, or e even a lot of people that say that they're not religious have have kind of moved into this spiritual but not religious thing where they're like well the universe has a there's some prime cause in the universe and blah 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 and and they speak to that as being this deep psychological need so i guess it's those two things the difficulty of it for regular for quote regular people which is what i hear and mm. the uh, and the psychological need for meaning that comes from a belief in a deity yeah Okay. Uh, yeah, that's three very thoughtful questions. Um, if I parsing them out, sure, it's all in it's all one big ball. Sorry <laughs> about that. Yeah, yeah. And I think I'm on the the, the other side of all three of those. While I, I I see the force of those positions, so let me say say a few things. First, on the on the difficulty point, I I don't think there is anything in philosophy that is beyond the capacities of uh, a, a normal person with a with a normal normal intelligence. Uh, the kind of evidence I would give of this would be you know, any uh, parent who has had children ages four, five, uh, and six. And if you just eavesdrop on the kinds of discussions kids are having, they're having very sophisticated discussions about morality, fair play, uh, uh, what's yours, what's mine. Did the rule get broken or not? And uh, all of it is, is very sophisticated at an age five or, or six, uh, six year old level. Now, uh, these are still five or six years old. Their lives are not that complicated, but the basic principles are getting ironed out. They can understand them. And as uh, uh, life gets more complicated, we are just scaling up the same kind of understanding that we that we're capable of doing at age at age five. That's to talk about uh, kind of moral principles. So just to use a personal example, I can remember my daughter and a neighbor kid when uh, my daughter was six and the neighbor kid was five years old, sitting out in the sandbox in the backyard. I was a little bit off to the side in the shade, having a beer on a hot summer day. 
and uh, this was uh, when zombies and zombie video games were were all the rage and they were having a, a discussion about whether zombies were alive or not and uh, they were <laughs> one side was uh, was arguing that zombies were were dead and the other side was arguing that zombies were were alive you know one that was saying that no their their souls have left their body and all you have is uh, you know just mechanical bodies in motion and so there's a kind of dualistic understanding, soul and body, and that's what makes a human being. And the other uh, kid was arguing, this was my daughter, you know, that uh, no, the, the zombies are still able to move themselves and decide where to go. And they have, they want to eat your brains. So they must be at least a little bit alive and that maybe being alive or not comes in degrees. And so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> these are six and five year olds getting into sure. mind, body issues, life and death and so on. So. Uh, those issues can be sorted out. Eight and nine and 10 year olds uh, start to realize they have different religions. Is there really a God? Is there one God more than God? Or are there no gods or, 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 or gods are not? So to go back to the example you were using about physics, yes, uh, by the time we get to uh, quantum mechanics and say uh, relativity in physics and so on, all of that is very sophisticated and cutting edge. But if we talk about the kind of physics that uh, most people are, are are confronted with, you know, can I navigate stairs and opening doors? <laughs> and okay, and we can learn how to do all of that, and that's physics at age three. And again, kids in a sandbox doing very sophisticated engineering things, building sandcastles and moats and running water through it, and learning about hydraulics. And then by the time we are teenagers, we can learn how cars work, the brake system. The, the electrical system and so on. And so all of that is physics and increasingly sophisticated. So I think philosophy is uh, uh, exactly like that, right? The basic principles we can grasp when we are young uh, and we can scale up as our, 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 our intellectual mature. And of course, once you get into the very sophisticated issues, you know, philosophy does merge into physics. Philosophy does merge into neuroscience. It does merge into knowing lots and lots about history and their specialist knowledge becomes important, but everybody can do it. Now, that's just the first of uh, three things that were uh, that were in your package as well. So let me pause there, though, in case you want to jump in on that. No, I I I, I like that answer. And and as a parent, I definitely one thing that that I love about being a parent and actually just love about young kids is um, and a lot of people think I'm crazy for saying this, but they're naturally rational. Um, and what I mean by that is like they they expect a reason. They expect there to be cause and effect. They yep. want to understand it. They they don't have any of the context of knowledge that we have, but they certainly have this expectation that there should be there should be a reason for why why did this happen? And you know, as any parent knows, why 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 is the favorite no, question. No, no, and that's exactly right. And that was, uh, was almost uh, about to say that once they learn that why word, right, it becomes their favorite word. Uh, and they, they, to some extent, this is mechanical. They just, whatever you say, you know, they're going to say why, right? Yes. And then pretty soon you're talking about, you know, cellular chemistry and so on. Yes. I remember. But they've got it, right? And yeah. they are being little yeah. philosophers all the way down. Yeah. No, it's great. You're, I remember specifically a conversation I had where my daughter asked why a school bus was yellow. And it did not take many whys to get to me just saying, I have no idea. Like, I don't and know. That's a beautiful and like, thing we got down to happens. like, <laughs> yeah, the wavelengths of light and why this respond. Blah, blah, blah. Like, I, and I'm like, and psychological effects of colors. And I, I just threw my hands up and I was like, you know what? I just, I don't know. That's right. Uh, yeah. that's I right. don't know. So, And that's also then a philosophical lesson uh, for the kid. If their parent right says at some point, I don't know. Uh, uh, but encourages the kid to keep asking questions like that. So then that's yep. also learning about morality and sociability and, and, the, and, the, and the ethics of, of reasoning, in contrast to parents who teach different philosophical lessons who basically say, shut up, kids, stop asking so many questions, which is right. to train in a different philosophy. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the I wasn't a perfect parent, but one of the best decisions I made was uh, before my my first daughter was born. I said, I'm never going to say because I said so. I'm always <laughs> going to answer why to the best yeah. of my ability. Uh, Good. All right. And uh, I think, well, so, fingers crossed. She's not a mass murderer or anything. So I think it, so it's okay so far. 
Um, so, all right. So that's, so I, I would agree with, with um, what you're saying in general. Uh, the one caveat I want to question you about is once they've gone through childhood and have, I don't, I don't want to be too harsh about this, but have had their reasoning capacity stymied, have been discouraged from using it, have been molded by, I'll say, toxic ideas and psychologies. Yeah. Is it possible to take an adult like that and get them to reason, or is it kind of lost and very yes. difficult? Yeah, I want to say that's going to be outside of my area of expertise, but my uh, my hypothesis is that it can be lost, that it, it can be a, a use it or lose it type of faculty. So the analogy, I think, would be if you stunt people's physical development uh, 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 you know, at a certain point, uh, you can't get that back. Yep. Uh, you know, so it's like if you've never... Uh, develop basic coordination, for example, not even going in the direction of stunting. Uh, you know, you're never going to be, if you can't start at age 40 and learn how to play golf, if you've never right. had basic physical coordination, there's just too many uh, things that need to come together gracefully. And so by analogy, I would say if there are you know parts of your brain and your psychology that have not been practiced and developed uh, at the right developmental stages, then my hypothesis is sometimes it is going to be too late. Now, the example I have of this is, you know, every year or so I teach a course in logic. Um, and one of the things I've noticed over the course of many years is that uh, all of the students who take logic will either get an A, a C grade, or an F. Or, and there are very few who will get a B or a D. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of modal uh, distribution of the, of the grades. And the other thing that I notice is that that's tied partly to effort and partly tied to acquired ability at, say, age 20 by the time they're taking this university, university logic course. Because the students who get an A, they get an A pretty much effortlessly. They can see what the logic problems are. They can think abstractly. They can develop the theorems and so on. And they put in a minimal amount of effort and, and they get it. Uh, the students who get a C are the students who will struggle. They'll do all of the exercises. They will come in for extra work. Uh, and they will get a C, which is an average, average kind of grade. But uh, you always get the sense that uh, with uh, you know, even if you were to put additional time in it, they would never become an A student in, in logic, that their cognitive capacity for abstraction and following long trains of thought has reached a certain limit and they're just not going to get there anymore. And then the students are, who, uh, who get an F are typically not students who are, uh, are, are not able to pass the course. That becomes an, an effort issue. They just haven't tried very hard and so they, so they get an effort. So it's, it's interesting that it doesn't seem to be, uh, this is obviously a small data set. We're, we're talking about you know, a few thousand students perhaps over the course of my career, but uh, the person's cognitive capacity for abstraction and following chains of thought peaks and, and it becomes set. And I, I'm not convinced yet of the data that says that can be dramatically expanded beyond hmm. age 20 or so, but I'm open. Well, I mean, I think what you're saying comports with studies that I know have been done about language. Um, and certainly there's there's if you don't learn um, if you don't learn certain language uh, nuances, you, you actually can't like uh, yeah, sure. I think like an adult Japanese person who never was exposed to the difference between the sound L and R can't yeah. differentiate. And they there's no learning there. They just can't even hear it. Um, yeah, and some of that seems to be physiological, right? That the, the mm -hmm. auditory parts of the brain, right? The connections don't get made uh, before puberty, I, I understand it is. And then after, uh, they can't be developed. So, uh, yep, yep, yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's important, I think, to remember that every experience and, uh, you know, every time we learn anything, we're, and the way our brain works is it is a physiological change. That's how the brain, <laughs> brain works. So, mm -hmm. like... Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Um, before we move on, I just there's someone someone has a super chat, and I just want to get to it because um, I told I promised people I would try and let them ask you questions <laughs> if they wanted to. Great. Um, so 
uh, this one is from uh, Zyben64. says, have you looked into bicameral mind or other theories of human consciousness and its relationship to culture? I have not. I understand the big name associated with that is Julian Jaynes, and I know some people who are enthusiasts, and I know that I had a copy of the book back when I was in graduate school, but I've not gotten to it, so I can't say. Okay. Yeah, I have. I don't have any info on it either. Okay, so so that's that. So that I guess the next, uh, so that's the, the question about, are the rules too complex for most people? Is it too difficult? Right. What about this idea that there's an internal, innate, need to believe in something bigger. Okay. Well, I do think uh, human beings are born with all sorts of needs, cognitive needs, emotional needs, physical needs, and so on. And I think we do need to believe in something. Uh, and so I think philosophy, having a set of principles to guide your life, knowing who you are, what your values are, and some uh, semi-explicit at least worked out understanding of the meaning of life. I think that is a is a human need uh, that we all recognize that in us. And if we don't develop uh, that need, then we are going to feel all sorts of uh, psychological problems and, and so on. But the question then is uh, what's going to fill that need? And this is where all of the different philosophies uh, have value, even if they are false values. So there are such things as placebo philosophies out there. You know, they push your buttons, uh, but they don't provide you with the, 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 the genuine psychological value, right? Or they are the, the equivalent of empty calories. It feels like you're eating something and your taste buds and your stomach is satisfied, but you're not actually, actually getting the nutrition. So uh, uh, many religious philosophies, I'm not going to say all religious philosophies, uh, and then many secular philosophies, uh, are fulfilling a general need, uh, however much they don't follow through. If they're not true, they're not going to be able to follow through uh, through on those on those values. So, I think fairly quickly we would need to get to the specific kinds of answers and how they provide, you know, at best partial satisfaction of that of that genuine need. So. For example, um, uh, you know, not all religions. Uh, uh, have the same metaphysics even, or the same epistemology, or the same understanding of human nature. So to speak of religion in general, I think is, is, is inappropriate. But if we take, uh, you know, say what I think of as the healthiest kinds of religion, this is going to be the kind of person who says, you know, I look out at the world and the world may, it seems to be cause and effect. There's, there, there, are, there, there are laws. Uh, it seems to be that if human beings are going to, uh, achieve something significant with their life. They need to have healthy values. And if we're going to do these things socially, we need to have uh, agreed upon principles and so on. And so we need to have kind of a, a, a physical structure of the universe and an understanding of it and a moral structure of the universe and an understanding of that. And so uh, that I think is all healthy and, and philosophy. Now, if you then say, the next step, well, where do these principles come from? You know, why is the world cause and effect? Where do these moral rules come from and so on? Then, of course, one of the big moves in philosophy is to say, well, we need to go to a divine source and have a, an, an underwriter, right? A kind of a scientist god right. who made the world and laid some, some rules on it. Now, I think cognitively that's a mistake, uh, but I can say that kind of religion is healthier than a different kind of religion that will have a very different starting point, right? Which will then be to say something like the world is irrational and it makes no sense. Uh, uh, and uh, morality just seems to be human beings devouring each other and we're all just monsters. And so what are we going to do about this? Well, we're just going to believe in some sort of irrational God who, who's very whimsical and doing all of these miracles and that human beings are beasts uh, who need to be strictly controlled by authoritarian religious leaders and so on. Uh, I think that also is a religion that is false, but it's also coming from an initially unhealthy place. And that's a very mm. different kind of religion than the first kind of religion that, 
that we talked about. But at the same time, uh, setting aside uh, religious answers to those questions, there are going to be people who aren't religious at all, or who will say the world is irrational and, and conflictual and human beings are beasts to each other and I'm in favor of some sort of authoritarian dictatorship, but they're purely secular. And that person I think is much less healthy than the kind of person who's going to have a different kind of naturalistic metaphysics. So I think we would need to get to specifics about the bigger meaning. Uh, at, at, at that point, we're just saying, well, there's this philosophy. Is it true or not? And to the extent that it's not true, it's not going to provide a genuine sense of sense of meaning. So uh, another form of this, uh, and I think this was the, the middle part of the question, is to say uh, people find meaning by becoming something larger than themselves. And they don't necessarily mean a, de a deity, right? There's a God who's going to provide meanings and obligations and lay it on you, and you just kind of fulfill God's rules, and that's how you find meaning. I think that's ultimately empty. Uh, but there also are going to be people who have a secular version of that, and they will say, uh, you find meaning by merging yourself into some sort of social grouping. And uh, it is true uh, that there is great value, psychological value, because I think we are social beings, to uh, to having healthy social relationships. But right again, uh, we need to parse this out. I think there are healthy and unhealthy ways of forming those social uh, social groupings. There is a kind of person who wants to have meaning in their life, but they don't do the individualistic work of forming their own character, forming their own values finding genuine, meaningful pursuits in their life. And so they have this need for meaning, but they are individually empty. And so they then will try to get a, 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 a meaning for their life by merging with some sort of group. Whereas then what they will do is say, well, there's the group and it has its values, its way of living. And it's kind of like going into the department store and buying a ready-made suit, right? And I just put the ready-made suit on and now I'm a certain kind of person and there are social rules that are accepted to me. And all of that, I think, can work up to a certain point, but it's ultimately going to be empty right? because you are you're wearing a suit, but you're still a, an, an empty suit to, uh, yep. to, use, to use that kind of metaphor. At the same time, there are all kinds of social groupings out there that are individuals coming together with shared values. But as individuals, they already have developed their own sense of who they are and have recognized whatever that social grouping is, is about a genuine value. And you want to pursue that value with other people who, uh, have, who have independently shared that value. And I think it is true, given our psychological constitution, that uh, that can augment the experience of that value. So just to take an example of music, uh, you know, if I, if I just go to a concert because all of my friends are going to a concert and everybody tells me this is the kind of music that I am supposed to like, well, I'm only going to get a superficial experience, social experience of music. On the other hand, if I have developed my musical appreciation and formed my own musical tastes, you know, it is one thing and I can get a great deal of value just listening to that music all by myself. But there really is something to going to a concert where everybody else is enthusiastic about that kind of music and, and feeling part of a group where you have that shared interest. That uh, gives you both the individual experience and a socialized value experience. So it becomes complicated pretty quickly. You know, one thing that I was contemplating when, when you when you're talking about the the value of kind of belonging to a group and, and the social value that can replace or, or provide meaning, meaning or pseudo meaning um, is, is that a lot of, a lot of atheists, uh, I'll exclude myself and presumably you, I, I, I'm, I haven't heard your politics, but I can guess, um, a lot of, a lot of atheists are actually state theists. They seem to, they seem to have substituted the God for worship of the state as an entity, worship of the, you know, they, they love the idea of, math being the dictator of uh, ethics, and they love the idea of centrally enforced ethics by, you know, some authoritarians, e even if it's a mild version of it, they become state theists. I mean, a large percentage of them are, are outright Marxists. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
No, no, I think you're you're right. Um, you know, to take Marxism as an, an extreme example to say that that is a secular form of uh, a Judeo-Christian ethos. You know, that's that's well worked well worked out territory. But but I, but I think your 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 point is right, and that uh, this is where it becomes interesting philosophically about you know what comes first, one's metaphysics or a value framework or a politics, and and I think a well worked out philosophy will be foundationally metaphysical and epistemological right from the get-go and develop the rest. But that's not necessarily the psychological order that it works out in, in many people. So we do know that there is a psychological type of person who does not develop their individual competency. And so uh, if you don't develop yourself as an individually competent person, I can make my own way in the world including making my my living, just to, to focus on the economic issues. If that's your core self-assessment with respect to that issue, then you naturally are going to want someone to provide for you. And that can take a religious form. You know, the, the Lord is my shepherd and the Lord will provide. Uh, and God is my father and, and, and religion is a kind of economic uh, 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 providing function in that uh, for, for that kind of psychology but that is same kind of psychology can be combined with the idea well i can't really buy into the belief in a a big provider in the sky but i still feel that lack of competence to look after myself and so i want someone else to provide for me so i still so i'm going to need some sort of powerful agency to provide for me and so i'm attracted to the state uh, as a, as a as a provider uh, for that Right. Um, so uh, in that case, the issue, the metaphysical issue is not the primary or whether one is a theist or a theist. Instead, it's driven by a psychology, but that psychology is grounded in uh, a, a personal assessment of your your nature as not being able to provide for yourself. I, I'm actually I I didn't have this as a planned question, but we're kind of going into this territory and it's fascinating because I. I've been very I've been pushing philosophy as the ultimate answer to this, although I understand the time horizons are very long. Right. I mean, philosophy takes generations and generations to kind of change and affect culture in any meaningful way. But I'm starting to wonder if what what's really happening is a dance between philosophy and psychology in which um, there's a certain psychological uh, characteristics that that help people to gravitate towards or even invent bad philosophical arguments in order to 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 satisfy their psychological needs and then this kind of redounds upon itself because now those arguments and philosophies are out there so uh they attract and maybe even encourage other psychological dysfunction and you get this kind of cycle over generations of uh kind of bad philosophy mixed with bad psychology and they kind of they they rely on one another because if we look at the culture now, it's not just bad philosophy. There's a heck of a lot of really dysfunctional psychology that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, again, that's another uh, interesting network of uh, questions and observations, <laughs> right? All built in there. So the, the first part of your your commentary though was about the the pace at which philosophy works its way through the culture, mm -hmm. and and I think that is accelerating. Uh, you know, partly driven oh. by technologies. Uh, so I think it, it's true that you know, back in medieval times, <laughs> uh, uh, communication was slower. And so ideas, good or bad, took a longer time to, 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 to develop. Institutions changed more slowly. And so cultures changed uh, more slowly. But uh, it is interesting that as we got more uh, modern communications, uh, and more flexible cultural institutions, the rates of change have been quicker. So, for example, uh, you know, if we in, in education, for example, and I, and I appreciate the plug for my forthcoming book on eight philosophies of education, uh, there are all sorts of relatively new philosophies that were developed in the late 1800s and on into the 1900s that uh, within a generation or two had a major impact. And uh, the development and dissemination of those ideas would have taken uh, a century or more uh, in, in pre-modern times. So I do think the, the, uh, the pace is, is hmm. changing. 
Um, That's an excellent so point. I hadn't the, the rate of adoption of new technologies. You know, we're all familiar with the, those, those those curves. Well, ideas are a kind of technology, and philosophy is a kind of uh, technology. I think it's subject to that same that same dynamic. Now, uh, the second part of your question about the interplay of philosophy and psychology. Now, this is very very interesting. Sometimes we can put it as a chicken and egg question, right? Does does philosophy drive psychology or does psychology drive philosophy and, and so on? But also, I think there is a, a, a kind of taxonomy issue here that uh, uh, I mean, philosophy is narrower in the sense that it is a part of your psychology. It is your explicit, mm -hmm. abstract uh, understanding of the universe yourself and your, your value framework. And of course, that's always uh, part of any given individual's psychology. Right? So philosophy isn't a, isn't a free-floating thing. Uh, ideas are, are in, in individual minds, and those, those individual minds are, are a fully operational psychology. So in that sense, um, philosophy is always operationalized in a psychology. Right? So it's not that we can just do philosophy in isolation from a psychology or have psychology in isolation from from a philosophy right? so uh, uh um, so th they are they are embedded now then at the same time what we often mean is to say that a person's psychology by which we mean the full network of their their perceptions and their emotions and their their, their habits of speaking and their conscious beliefs, uh, some of them more abstract than others. So that entire constellation integrated with a certain body. And so uh, there are kind of psychophysical habits and so on. Uh, if we take the individual as he or she is developed at a point, does that determine or dictate what the content of their philosophy is and can be? So given a certain kind of psychological type, that type of person is necessarily going to believe certain or within a certain range, certain philosophical ideas. Or to go the other way, is it the case that we can do philosophy? We can think abstractly about arguments and evidence and then reach certain conclusions. And then having reached those conclusions, uh, use those on our psychology and then reshape our habits, reshape our actions reshape our our perceptions of the world reshape our emotions in which case philosophy is ultimately determining of psychology so that's the 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 second uh, way of thinking about that issue now on that second set of issues i think it can go both ways i think it is the case that people can take their existing psychology you know you're you're 25 years old <laughs> you've had a lot of years of developing habits and, and emotions and beliefs about the world and you can say to yourself i'm going to stop thinking too deeply about certain things i'm just going to take my psychology as i am and then that is then going to limit the range of philosophical ideas that you will entertain and uh, even if you do come to believe something a little bit different, which ones you're actually going to operationalize and, and work to change on your habits. So people can decide psychologically to become static with respect to their philosophy, and then their psychology is dictating their philosophy for the rest of their lives. But it is always possible. I think human beings are volitional beings uh, uh, that people can use their philosophy to change their psychologies. And there's, there are lots of examples of this, you know, people who change their minds about religion or or about uh, the, uh, how important money is in their life or what they what they what they want to accomplish uh, uh, before they die. And so they think about various things and uh, uh, they, they reach some uncomfortable conclusions and they're uncomfortable to them because they make them feel emotionally unsettled or they realize that it's going to require changing a lot of their habits and re-evaluating their social relationships. But they say, no, I think the more important here is to, thing is to go with my philosophical conclusions. And so they take their philosophy first and they use that to, uh, to change their psychology. Uh, and I think that's, that's always an open project as well. Let me ask, is this light too harsh 
Uh, should I adjust? If it's the- if it's too harsh for you, it's too harsh. I mean, you do look kind of like you're in a Stanley Kubrick movie at once. Uh-huh. Uh- okay. <laughs> While you're formulating your next question, then let me adjust a curtain, and uh, I, I can okay, still sure. hear you though. <laughs> well, I will. Uh, I will. Um, I'll maybe go back to something that we touched on that uh, I think I sent you an email. So this is not a question you haven't heard, but, um, you know, I've, I recently, uh, as I thought more about philosophy and, and, and the status of, of Western civilization, um, I've been coming to this, this, I've been increasingly convinced that it's not these crazy philosophies that are the real enemy. Um, it's not it's not the it's not the postmodernism and the critical theory as crazy as they are. It's it's <laughs> pragmatism. Um because I meet very, very few people who are <clears throat> willing to um talk in terms of principles and then con- and then and then attempt to apply them consistently. There is a I don't know if you remember in the beginning of uh philosophy who needs it, um Rand has this uh, long, not long, but she's got a few, a bunch of examples of, of little cliche slogans. And then, you know, you say you don't need philosophy and uh, then yeah, she has, yeah. she has these little slogans and you got that from this philosopher. You got that one from this from philosopher. Hume, you, from Kant, from Dewey. Yeah. And so on. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so I'm this idea that consistency uh, doesn't matter. What, what's the consistency is the hobgoblin of a little mind? I think yeah, I Emerson, which yeah. Emerson said it. Yeah, right. So this idea that that you don't actually have to be consistent and you can pick and choose um, aphorisms that suit your situation seems to make it very, very difficult for because, um, you know, when, when I think of defending America, I think of this like, OK, look individualism is a, is a principled thing we need to figure out how to apply individual sovereignty and in all these these cases and yeah. this is a principle and we can argue about the application of the principle but that's the principle we're trying to apply here yeah. um and often though you get people saying well but and they they pull off some some aphorism from somewhere else and they they have this idea that well things need to be balanced you don't want to be too extremely individually sovereign you, everything needs to be balanced. You don't want to be too much of this or too much of that. There has to be, you know, some kind of a balance. And to me, that opens the door for absolute lunacy because you get these out of context little aphorisms that are taken hmm. and then people run with them and apply them yeah. whenever they want. Yeah, well, that's a that's a rich set of territory. And, and I like uh, very much that you're using pragmatism in its kind of proper technical sense. Uh, mm-hmm. as, a, as a philosophy, right? And, yeah. and it is a principled, it sounds a little bit paradoxical, but it isn't, <laughs> right? It's a principled decision, right? Not to be principled. The idea yes. then is that we have to not worry too much about the long term because we can't really plan for the long term. We need to focus on the short term or that everything is changing so much that we can't uh, abide by a principle that we used last year uh, in evaluating the situation this year. And so yep. we are, as a matter of, maybe principle is not the best word, as a matter of policy, we're going to be more range of the moment. Now, of course, there are people who are pragmatists. I'm, I'm putting this in quotation in a default kind of way. They don't want to exert the effort to think long term and make a plan and to follow through. And sometimes, of course, you make commitments that you uh, are going to exert a cost that you didn't anticipate. So they want to be hypocrites. And so pragmatism in that sense is a is a a cheap default position. But at the same time, there is a more philosophical form of pragmatism. And I think you are right that it's it's uh, in a way uh, at least an equally serious adversary to postmodernism. Uh, which is just an outright skepticism and uh, and an embrace of power and chaos and uh, and and, and uh, ultimate nihilism, but uh, pragmatists don't typically see themselves as going the whole postmodern hog. They want to see themselves as sort of being in that balance position, as you were putting it, between people who are, from their view, hung up on there being these universal general principles that we are going to 
have a high sense of integrity and sticking with versus kind of loosey-goosey, let it all go, power politics kind of postmodernism. Uh, and that is what pragmatism is. Now, the, the Greek root word here of pragma is, is uh, you know, being focused on what works, right? what's practical. Uh, and, and I'm all in favor of doing what works and being what is practical. But then the question is whether uh, it is possible to come up with more general principles to cover great wide range of circumstances. So very general principles, uh, very long range principles, and whether all of those principles are consistent with each other so that we can have a consistency. And that takes us into all sorts of, uh, of serious philosophical debates. Now, one of the uh, arguments, this is why philosophy becomes, uh, becomes important here, is that the philosophical pragmatists will say, anytime you start talking about general principles, you're talking about these great, huge abstractions and these great, huge inductive generalizations that are supposed to hold for all times. But if you are a, uh, a skeptic or you have bumped into all of the standard skeptical arguments, then it's very easy to come to the conclusion that, you know, cognitively, it's just not possible for us to come up with well-justified, very general universal principles. Right? The best we can do is come up with uh, uh, principles that apply to a fairly narrow range of cases, and beyond that, we're just we're just blowing smoke in various ways. And what that then means is they will put limitations on the power of reason or on the power of cognition, and and have more of a tunnel vision. So all we can do is understand what's going on in this situation and work out some rules of thumb to to solve this set of problems right now, uh, and then. Next year, we're going to have a different situation and we'll have to work it out again. And, and there's no way of saying that there's some overarching principle that covers all of these cases, right? And so on. Now, the other issue uh, is not so much an epistemological issue or a cognitive issue, but uh, a, a more metaphysical issue about evolution. Many people will get to their pragmatism by saying, you know, so much changes in the world and, and basically everything changes and nothing abides. So there really aren't any constants in the world. So this idea that we can learn from history, you know, 200 years ago, two millennia ago, uh, is, is just a pipe dream. So yeah, we know that there were the Egyptians and the Greeks and the, and then the medievals and so on, but things were just so different there uh, that any of the principles that might have applied in that context, the, the facts on the ground have changed so dramatically that none of those principles apply anymore. So the principles themselves need to be, from this pragmatic perspective or pragmatist perspective, evolutionary themselves. And then that will get pushed not only to uh, kind of social principles, but even to the, uh, to the idea of uh, you know, physics principles or biology principles. And many of the, uh, the first generation pragmatists did come out of uh, the first generation after Charles Darwin. So the idea then, you know, there's kind of mm. one set of nutritional principles for all animals that are fixed for all time. Uh, that's that's ridiculous, right? So animals evolve, and what their nutritional needs are evolves over time, and there's going to be a relativity across species as well. So if you generalize on that, uh, well, maybe the chemical principles of the universe and the physics principles and the mathematical principles, everything is subject to change. And so what's true at one time is not necessarily going to be true at another time. And so you have a, kind of an, an evolutionary practice, uh, a, a pragmatism that, that evolves. So that's then to do a quick thumbnail boosting of pragmatism, even though I don't think those positions are true, but there is, you're right to say that kind of position uh, uh, is ultimately going to undermine, you know, I, I, the example you use, the, uh, the say, the, the founding principles of the United States, to say, you know, there are human beings and that human beings by their nature, all of them, and that's a great, huge, whopping generalization, all of right. the human beings, even though you haven't met any of them, right, and the pragmatists are going to start immediately being skeptical and say, well, how do you know that all of these human beings are the same? And they have the same needs, right. let alone the same rights and so on. That's 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 just, you know, too hubristic, uh, an epistemological generation. And then also, how do you know that human beings haven't changed across time? Maybe human beings and what their needs were back in the 1700s changed 
as a result of social circumstance and, and, and physical evolution and so on. And so uh, the right kind of social principles is also going to change over, over time as well. So yes, absolutely. The idea that there are absolute universal principles and we should be sticking to our guns and, and be persons of high principle with respect to all of them, that uh, is going to be undercut by any sort of philosophical pragmatism. It, something that's striking me when you describe the pragmatists is uh, the the massive sweeping universal induction they're making about things changing and there can't ever be any. Like, <laughs> well, like, there, wow, is a, there is a paradox a there thing. about how yeah. you formulate that. That's right. Yeah, there are no general principles. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. That's kind of what's being said. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I don't. I don't know how much longer I have with you, um, so I don't. I don't want to. Let's do one more. Out. One more question. All of this is is very fun. But let me, let me actually just follow up a little bit on this pragmatism. One, one thing I would say: with, you know, there are some philosophical issues there, and they they are perennial, uh, and some of them are legitimate about when we are in a position to generalize too much. And hasty generalizing is a is a problem. There also is the standard problem of having general principles but applying them in a very mechanical fashion, right? Rather than, you know, uh, to, to use the, the, the RAND language again, putting the measurements back in and exercising judgment right. appropriate, to the, appropriate to the circumstance. So sometimes the pragmatists have good criticisms against clunky generalizations and, 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 and clunky universalists. But if you think about uh, the things that have genuine meaning in life, if you are to go back to say relationship issues, you want to have a genuine relationship. And we all know that these things require commitment uh, and they require, you know, so, so if you start to function as a serious pragmatist, they say, well, baby, you know, uh, I'm, I'm good for the next month. Right. Uh, but uh, we'll have to re-up after a month because maybe things will have changed. Right. Uh, or, 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 you know, I can commit to you for six months and so on. You are going to put severe limitations on the kinds of relationships that people are interested in uh, in entering into with you. Or in terms of your personal character, if you say I'm going to be flexible with respect to honesty and fairness and I don't want to be too strict and absolutist with respect to that. It is going to uh, undercut your capacity to uh, engage in genuine values for the long term. One of the things that uh, you might run for office, though, with that. that <laughs> That's right. And uh, yeah, the, the same reason why we are disgusted by the majority of politicians is that they are pragmatists uh, and, and they're not actually human beings of principle. Yeah. No, I, I, I can see the clunky. There are a lot of clunky generalizations, and I can see the criticisms of those. Um, so I, I can see why that's that's legitimate. Uh, but yeah, it's it is a it is a concern to me that there's not a instead of attacking the clunkiness and saying, okay, well, here's where you're making mistake, and here's right. what you here's what you can actually generalize. Like, you know, I, we don't need to get into the abortion debate, but it's a great one to have. In, in I think personally in in ethics because it's if you start with well all human beings have a right to life it's like well what does that mean where does that come from what does it mean to be a human being why do they have a right to life and yeah. like those are that's those need to be peeled back to, to arrive at answers you can't just use those words and and pretend you've solved the problem exactly right and so the hard philosophical work uh, has to be done yes. You know, and, and it is uh, you know, part of the explanation for pragmatism is that it is a reaction against that uh, proper philosophical work not having been done. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We've got another question from the, the same uh, chatter who says, is natural selection and is ought connected? Natural selection and is ought connection. Uh, so what do you mean? Like Darwinian evolutionary theory? That's what uh, I'm and, understanding, and, but I'm not sure how it would be connected okay. to is ought. And then the is ought right yeah, issue. Well, uh, yeah, this is this is a big question, and I, I would say, I would say, yes, that my understanding of moral philosophy and the principles that we we get all of the oughts. This is what kind of person I ought to do, and the things that I ought yep. to strive for do need to be factually grounded. They need to be grounded in is statements about what kind of human uh, being I am, 
what my biological capacities are, what my psychological capacities are. And then also the same thing for you if we're going to do various things socially. So all of those things about what's proper for us as human beings are going to be grounded in a proper is understanding of what it is to be a human being. Uh, and uh, if we just get away from natural selection narrowly and say biologically, then yes, I would want to say uh, a, a healthy moral theory or proper moral theory is going to be biologically based, but using biological in a fairly broad sense. It is about living one's life <laughs> and, that, right. uh, and we, we are biological beings. So ethics is a broadly construed biological uh, uh, science. Yeah, and I think that's something that differentiates a rational ethics from um, maybe a more spiritual approach where, uh, you know, it's, it's about something disconnected from your biology, whereas a rational ethics is, look, here we are on Earth, we're on this right. ball, it doesn't even actually matter whether evolution got us here, here we are, this is our nature, this is what's required for our nature, mm. this is how we, this is where we start from, right, is this understanding sure. of of what our nature is, right? Right. And then uh, in non-religious forms, uh, those who will separate our psychology from our biology. Right? So we say, you know, I have yes. certain emotions and passions and so on, and I don't see how that's connected to anything, but I'm going to go with those. So yes, uh, again, right. more that, fun philosophical that work. Sense. That makes sense. All right. Well, look, uh, Dr. Hicks, I'm going to throw you one big question, and then we can go be done. Okay. What's the biggest philosophical threat to the West right now? Oh, to the West. Uh, I'm backing away from using the West language over the course of the last okay. 20 or 30 then. years or so, just because I think uh, to talk about Western civilization is a bit of a misnomer. I think it's true historically that Enlightenment principles were first articulated in the West, but I do think uh, they, they are no longer Western. Uh, you know, they, you know they, they, they're in East Asia. They're in uh, some healthy parts of Africa and Latin America and Australia, New Zealand, and so on. So, uh, I and like not in some parts of the West, I guess, as much as the no. East. That's true. That's right. They are they're they're atrophying there. So, um, but with that caveat, what I would say is oh, that's a hard one. Um, I think I would say cynicism is hmm. is probably the the biggest, and cynicism uh, I think is a initially a self-defeating value right it's a it's a it's a position that people arrive at where they will be disgusted at other people's you know, failure to live up to certain ideals uh and they then get overwhelmed by that and so they give up on expecting much of other people but then also they give up on expecting much of themselves and then often cynics will then say, well, what's the point of me becoming the best possible person I can be? Uh, and so uh, you basically end up underachieving in your in your life and even sabotaging, sabotaging your your potential. Uh, you don't then think you're going to develop your mind to uh, to take on life's challenges and, and achieve goals. You're going to short circuit your ability to have a genuine uh, long-term career satisfactions, personal relationships. The cynicism is going to be corrosive all, all the way down. So um, my, my, my answer for now then, and this is the thing I see many of my students struggling with, which is the why that comes to mind is they, uh, at age 20 or 23, they're, they're usually bright, young people at the beginnings of their lives. And if they adopt too much cynicism too soon, then it poisons them. And then mm. unfortunately their life is over, uh, or at least it is, uh, it's, it's, it's damaged significantly. So the counterpart to that is how you preserve, despite awareness of all of the negativity out in the world and all the hypocrisy out in the world, uh, a healthy sense that you can become something special in your life uh, and that it's worth it. And that there are, however uh, rare you might think it is, other genuinely wonderful people out there that you can find and connect with. Uh, keeping that flame alive uh, and never letting that go, I think that uh, that's fundamental. So cynicism is the threat. 
uh, uh, a benevolence about yourself and other people is the uh, is the antidote. Yeah, I I like that. I mean, I, you're the way you're describing cynicism. I'm thinking it as like this this proto nihilism or this like necrotic uh, kind of. It is. It is. Yeah. 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 Uh, although, just to say one more thing. It, I mean, cynicism is is a step away from nihilism, and it still recognizes ideals. But it tends mm. to see them as impractical ideals or unrealizable ideals. But there still is that kind of uh, implicit respect for ideals in cynicism that stops it from becoming completely nihilistic. That makes sense. That makes sense. Well, right, look, so uh, we need to have another discussion at some point in the future. You know, I was just going to say, I need to get you back. <laughs> so All right, great. I will definitely have you back. Thank you so much for your time. A real pleasure, um, Carter. Great questions. And yeah, that hour just flew by. It did. All right. It, it, it always does. Thank you, sir. Have uh, a great, uh, have too. a great evening. All the best. All right. Everyone, thank you for uh, those of you who joined us in live chat today and, uh, and those of who are watching on replay. Tomorrow, there's Token Minority Report with Beverly and Alex at 4 p.m. Monday, Narrative Dissonance. I'll be back at 2 p.m. Pacific. Please take a moment to head over to unsafespace.com to support this series. You can also go to, I put Stephen Hicks' uh, uh, website below. at stephenhicks.org. You can go there to find out more about him. And uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with a friend. Thanks again, everyone. And I will see you back next week. Thanks, Dr. Hicks. Adios. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production is known by the state of California to cause unregulated ideation that may be harmful to bureaucrats. Association with the following individuals, or tacos, is strictly prohibited. Apropos of nothing, I was just wondering how would you feel about another pandemic? Your president is in full control of his mental faculties. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice courtesy. Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake. <laughs>